0: After disaster strikes, it takes a long time to recover. For some, the recovery process never really ends. I'm Jake Steinberg, and this is State of Emergency. After Hurricane Michael devastated the Florida panhandle, support poured in from across the country. But as Peter Nachea reports, not everyone was there to help. My
1: wife and children evacuated. Now, on purpose, I decided to stay with my trusty dog here and so the dog and I weathered the hurricane here.
2: That's Ted Mahoney, a retired Navy captain from Lynn Haven, Florida and survivor of Hurricane Michael, which hit the Florida Panhandle in October 2018. Ted and his dog Sadie were fortunate to weather the
1: Category 5 storm, but his home suffered heavy damage. So we got through the storm, Uh, we lost the shingles. The structure withstood the storm marvelously, marvelously. Um, But because we lost the shingles, water comes in, and now you have inside water damage. So that was the thing that we had to deal with. We, of course, lost power. We we did lose cell phone coverage, okay, which was very bad. We, We lost that for quite a period of time. And that created a lot of problems. So we, without, without
2: any stable means of communication, Ted had no way to seek out a
1: contractor or get in touch with his families. And in today's world, that's an uncomfortable thing because we're so interconnected all the time with information and people. When that gets yanked away, particularly when you're dealing with a disaster, something that where things need to happen, it's a, it's a strange position to be in. So a lot of folks descended upon the area to provide services. So you have all these people coming into the area, and they're going door to door, word of mouth, uh, um, uh, trying to offer their services and things like that. Uh, We ended up talking to a particular contractor who came in from another area. They said, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. So we signed the dotted line, the contracts.
2: With the contractor signed on, Ted thought he and his family would recover in days. But days turned into weeks and weeks into months.
1: And to this date, you can go into a number of these rooms and you can see the drywall is still there. But he charged the insurance company for removing most of that drywall. Black and white. It wasn't done. Ted's
2: roof was repaired, but inside, his home remains gutted and littered with nails left behind from the contractor's unfinished work. If you look at these studs
1: over here, you can see all kinds of screws and nails and fasteners that are sitting proud of the studs. And when they remove the drywall, that's what's left, because that's what holds it up. Well, that's supposed to be removed. All these fasteners, including the ones you see two stories above us, are supposed to be removed and this contractor claimed he he called out a line item that includes removal of those studs, not done ted is
2: now in the middle of a legal battle between his contractor and insurance company with no clear
1: indication of when the matter will be settled the flood of these people a lot of these folks know how the game is played now i call it a game how the, a disaster game is played and they take advantage of it and they also unfortunately Uh, guilty as charged, um, they do prey on the folks in the area for their own personal advantage, and that's criminal. Areas
2: affected by natural disasters
1: make the perfect
2: hunting ground for dishonest contractors and insurance fraudsters who look to prey on emotionally devastated victims that need help. Even more than nine months after the storm, Ted says many residents have had extraordinary difficulties finding contractors who finish their jobs
1: or show up at all. I think the natural tendency is for people to trust people. You want to trust people. And without the resources that you and I are used to using, whether it's the Internet or or all the various uh, um, applications, social media and stuff like that, um, in the early phases, without having access to that, it's very hard to sort out. It's a business. You're providing a service? Absolutely. Provide it honestly and transparently. And those last two words is where I think a lot of people are having difficulty with some of the contractors. In retrospect, for a windstorm event like we suffered here, one of the first bits of advice I would say is, people, stop and take a deep breath right after the disaster. Take a pause. The damage that you have suffered is Probably not going to get a lot worse over the next few days, probably not even the next few weeks. Take a time out. Wait till enough of the information services get restored so you can make the best decision that you can.
0: That was Peter Nechea. Recovering from flooding can take an especially long time. Even if your house floods just once, that's enough for a lifetime of trouble. Rachel Farrell has a story from Houston, where Hurricane Harvey is still claiming victims.
3: I stayed in here and I got sick, and I was in the house sick three weeks, and I didn't know what's wrong.
4: That's Leola Davis. She bought her house a little less than 50 years ago when she was 27. It's a modest house in a historically black community just north of downtown Houston. After Hurricane Harvey and the flooding that came with it, there was extensive damage.
3: And I really didn't know it was mold until... Some guys came out uh, looking at the house, and the and uh, the roof had tolled in. The front bedroom roof had complete the whole roof had cut, uh, in. But uh, we had some old people come in just to check, and we was getting estimates, and we saw all this thick black stuff, and they told me it was mold. One of the worst problems that people face in
4: recovery after disasters is mold. It became an immediate concern in Houston, and research after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita documented mold damage in homes.
5: I've had individual families that have painted over mold because they were tired of seeing it and they had no means to assist themselves. So they painted over the mold, which, so the wall looks brand new, but if you touch it, it's like a sponge, and that is lethal.
4: Christina Cornejo is a program officer with the Rebuild Texas Fund. She said they're still assessing homes in Texas that were hit by Harvey in 2017. In the meantime, people are stuck in mouldy homes that can lead to serious illnesses. Those with asthma, allergies or with a weakened immune system are especially at risk, including those getting treatment for cancer. Leola actually didn't want to leave. She didn't think the damage was that bad. It wasn't until the mould made her so ill that she couldn't move that her family convinced her to leave her quaint house in Independence Heights.
3: And my grandson told my daughter, we need to go see about mom because her phone is not ringing and she's not answering, let's go see about her. So when they came here, I was six. The mold, if you stay in it, uh, it's, um, it makes you cough a lot. It takes your strength away from you. You don't want to do nothing but just lay there. You don't want to eat, you don't want to drink nothing. You don't even want to go to the restroom. You just want to be left alone. And that's what it did to me. So I went.
4: The mold was so bad, it actually infected Leola's granddaughter, who stayed with her for just a few nights after the hurricane.
3: But she went to the, um, have her ears checked because her ear had got infected. And uh, when she went to, uh, to have it uh, checked, uh, mold spurs was in her ears. So that's how bad the mold was in the house, because it got in, in her ears. It didn't get it in my ears.
4: Since then, Leola has been living with her daughter. She didn't have flood insurance for her home at the time of Harvey. She got a small loan for repairs, but she was too sick to work and unable to continue her
3: payments. By me never being sick, I, I, hadn't, I have only had about two colds in my whole lifetime. And by being down sick, that was scary because I've never been down, I've never been where I couldn't help myself. I was always on the go, always working, doing something. so it was scary for a while. And then I started talking to, the, uh, to God. And it just brought my faith uh, up. And I started just reading and praying more like I used to when I was in my home. But I think God just taking care of me.
4: Leola's house is still uninhabitable, but it's slowly being rebuilt by a team from Houston response. The group mobilizes church coalitions for disaster response and they've been sending volunteers to repair Leola's home.
3: Just keep your faith in God. Have confidence in yourself that God's going to help you, and you're going to be able to make it. You're going never, never lose hope.
0: That was Rachel Farrell. Imagine you flip a light switch, but the lights don't turn on. You reach for your phone, but you have no service. You turn on your computer, but you don't have internet either. For many Virgin Islanders, this was their reality after Hurricane Irma. And to make matters worse, Hurricane Maria wasn't far behind.
6: Here's Natalie Wattis. To sum it up in one word, it was horrendous. You know, I experienced hurricanes before, but when the first hurricanes I ever experienced in my life, I had vision. Now that I'm visually impaired or blind, it took on a whole different aspect of it.
7: Gerard Evelyn is a 49-year-old native of St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. He's been through several hurricanes, but Irma and Maria were the first ones he experienced while blind.
6: Before I could see the devastation, now I'm listening to it, I could hear it. So it sounds almost like a freight train going by on a railroad, you know, blowing its whistle or uh, one of those big Boeing jets when it's about to land but amplified like a hundred times as the wind blows, your windows vibrating, the concrete house was vibrating.
7: After the storm, Gerard couldn't see how bad the storm had devastated his house, but he felt the effects of it all around him. Debris from neighbors' houses lined the chain-link fence in front of his house, and a tree had fallen on his shed in the backyard, exploding it.
6: Basically, the house itself is intact, but the roof has been damaged. I guess by flying debris. The force of the impact created like cracks in the concrete roof. So when it rains, I got drips of water all over the place.
7: Luckily, Gerard's house survived. But there was a different problem. The power was out.
6: Yeah, we didn't, I didn't have any power here for, let's see, almost four months. Well, the biggest challenge with not having power is keeping my my insulin cold, because I'm a diabetic. I use the insulin pens. They can stay out for 28 days without being refrigerated. But beyond that, it renders it useless.
7: With no idea of when power would be restored, Gerard had to rely on the goodwill of his neighbors, who had a generator, to store his medicine for him. And with the power out and no contact with anyone besides those neighbors, having a small radio in his house turned out to be the most valuable thing Gerard owned.
6: The radio was important because that was our only form of communication, really, with the government. Cell phones were spotty at best. There was no internet connection. There was no way to even get any connectivity. Radio now, the government, um, different government agencies, the governor, FEMA, the police department, they would come on on the radio and they would tell you when the curfew is lifted, when the, which roads are open, which roads are not. You had to have at least a little transistor radio to hear what was actually going on. And that was through the radio. Otherwise, you'll be like a fish out of water, and you're left out in the cold.
7: Now, with the radio, Gerard says he felt in touch with the pulse of the island and how recovery was actually moving along. But that didn't hide the fact that no one had come to check on him. And despite living on his own, Gerard still considers himself at a disadvantage because of his blindness. He heard on the radio that aid workers had been to nursing homes and housing projects to check up on people who were especially vulnerable after the storms in his area. But he feels that they passed over his neighborhood.
6: There is a community you call the silent community. Way back growing up, it was like a sin to have somebody with a disability. they would hide them it 's like a hidden community. hide them in the house people wouldn 't see them. I think they still have that kind of mentality in their mind because just me being out and about by myself, people feel i shouldn 't do things like that. people feel that you know a person with disability should not even be on their own if you 're living in like a project like you know one of those places that You know, it's a housing complex. It looks like people tend to go there first other than coming through neighborhoods like where I live. I guess they feel that maybe that's the only places that disabled people live. I don't know what's their rationale for that, you know, but they they didn't come to my house and I, I was right here.
7: In an attempt to get officials to recognize the issue, Gerard went to the legislature after a bill was put forward to create a registry for seniors with disabilities. It was a step in the right direction but it wasn't inclusive of people like him.
6: One senator supposedly passed this bill to create a registry where seniors are living by themselves. So I raised the issue, and I went to the legislature. He's stating in the bill that he's trying to pass, persons, seniors with disabilities, living on their own. But I'm not a senior. I live on my own, along with other people that's not seniors that also have disabilities that lives on their own. So what happened to us? You understand? Even if I was living in a housing community, I live on my own. My thing is in society, where does that leave persons under 65 with a disability that lives on their own? Where are we?
7: But Gerard and the other advocates banded together for more inclusive language to be added to the bill. And in April of 2018, it passed, just in time for this year's hurricane season.
6: There will be a next thing, because I call this face Hurricane Ali. That's the price of living in the Caribbean. That was Natalie Wattis. What happens
0: after a disaster really depends on where you stood in society before the disaster. Miguel Octavio brings us a story from the Carolinas, where resources meant to help victims ended up making recovery even more difficult. I was living
8: there before this uh, storm decided to visit. Uh, At the time of the storm, I was home. Uh, The water started getting high.
5: And everything was history after that. That's Margot Whitehead. She's a Navy veteran who lives in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Margot was rescued from her flooded home during Hurricane Matthew in 2016, and she's been displaced ever since.
8: I just watched the water come up, and I didn't really think that once I left the house that i will never come back, that I would never be able to come back here again to live. I think that was the hardest part. It was the after effect, not the fact that at that time, not the days, the months, but I guess the year that went by and the next year that went by. I think that's the hardest part, is driving by looking at it. A storm can actually bring the whole, put the world at a standstill. You know, people going through it, but it's, it's the why me thing.
5: Why me? You know, but why not me? After staying at a shelter, she began applying for a FEMA aid, but the recovery process wasn't quite what she expected. The
8: storm is nothing compared to the paperwork. It's a never-ending. Wow. The storm was one hit that was devastating. The paperwork is the monster. And this person is said, do do you qualify, said, well, my house was destroyed. I thought that was the qualification.
5: While mold from Matthew grew in Margo's home, Hurricane Florence ravaged eastern North Carolina in 2018, damaging it even more. This was the second 500-year flood in three years.
8: Another storm come. I see no need to apply for any assistance. Because we, look, three strikes, I'll be out. Trying to get back back to my own little house. Little house on the prairie.
5: The damage from Florence didn't just happen in Fayetteville. The storm devastated a lot of other places, like Jacksonville, a city near the central coast of North Carolina.
9: I grew up in Massachusetts, a small town on the south coast. And the military brought me here.
5: My husband... That's Betty LaPenta. She lives in Jacksonville with her husband, Bob. She's 71, retired, and lives on a fixed income. Together, they live in a one-story house in a neighborhood mostly made up of retirees. They lived alone ever since their children moved out.
9: I grew up in Massachusetts, a small town on the south coast, and the military brought me here.
5: When Hurricane Florence made landfall, Betty went to California to stay with one of her daughters while Bob rode out the storm. Nearly a foot of water flooded their home before he evacuated. After the waters receded, the sheetrock walls had to be gutted. Almost everything in the house had to be thrown away. Anything that was susceptible to mold, the fridge, dishwasher, washer, dryer, all of it had to be thrown out. This included a box on the living room floor full of family pictures. When their grandchildren visited, they would look at the pictures of the decades of memories. Florence turned them into mold ridden garbage.
9: These are just things and time will help us, you know, get through it. Things can be replaced. You know, those you love, yeah, they can't. It it really doesn't matter what we've lost. We still have each other. We haven't lost each other, and that's the most important thing to both of us. We're supposed to be our forever home. And it will be again.
5: FEMA gave Betty enough money to get their motor home from Massachusetts to North Carolina. And that's where they've been living, with their two dogs and three cats.
9: It gets pretty furry in there. We are getting more claustrophobic by the day. It's getting tighter and tighter to the point where I've asked my husband, just get the bedroom and the master bathroom done so I can at least sleep in the house.
5: Betty's husband has tried to do most of the work to rebuild the inside of the house and they've relied mostly on nonprofits to fund it. The Salvation Army gave them two grand for furniture and the Green Lamp Foundation gave them six hundred dollars for mattresses and box springs. They also borrowed eleven grand from the small business administration.
9: A lot of us like myself, we're not asking for a handout. We're asking for a hand up. And if if more people would be willing to go out and help and not expect anything in return, not accolades or anything like that, but just out of the goodness of their hearts, a lot more people in this community would be back in their homes.
5: Betty's so grateful for the help she's received and the support she feels from her community. She actually volunteers for her local United Way to help give back.
9: It's because it's what you do for the community. It's what you do for your friends and your neighbors. And also, when I was a little girl, my dad, I was complaining about something, I don't even remember what it was, and he told me that I always needed to remember that. Um, If I was thinking about complaining, he used the analogy, I complained because I had no shoes until I saw a man with no feet.
5: And despite waiting almost a year to go home, Betty and Bob are optimistic that things will return to normal. But we're going
9: to get back into our home. If it's not next week, maybe next month, maybe by the time winter comes, we'll be back in the home. We've survived one winter in the motorhome already. And if we have to survive
5: another, we will. That's just all we can do. One of Betty's favorite hobbies is cooking and she knows exactly what her first meal is going to be when she gets home.
9: I'm gonna have a steak dinner.
5: Medium, medium rare? Well medium
9: done. rare. And we must have some crispy, crunchy crust on some nice warm Italian bread. <laughs> you know, dip in that juice from the steak. Yeah.
0: That was Miguel Octavio. This episode was produced by Peter Nachea, News 21 reporters Natalie Anderson, Rachel Farrell, Stacey Fernandez, Jake Goodrick, Miguel Octavio, Becca Scadden, Ben Sessoms, and Natalie Wattis also contributed to this episode. State of Emergency is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Night News 21, an investigative program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. On the final episode of State of Emergency... We've told you about the challenges faced before, during, and after disasters hit. So what have we learned from all this?